Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during a pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. And Roots is open for full in-person business at 108 East Lincoln Way in Valparaiso. The music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today, we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive titled No Interest in Seeing Our City Progress and I Wanted More for My Kid. So today on the show, we'll go ahead and play the stories and pause in between each to have a conversation about what the storytellers experience. And we thought today we would talk a little bit about, I don't know, the like how taxes impact a city. Now, I don't assume we're going to get too technical with this because I don't understand all the ins and outs of it, but I do know that when I was starting to learn more about Gary and the sort of relationship that our cities have together, that taxes and sort of economic investment did play a part in that. And I live right downtown, actually. And so I passed by the the Valparaiso or the Porter County government building and they were doing voting. And I'm like, what are we voting on? I didn't know we were voting. And so I went online and they're actually doing, um, it's like, I think, a property tax increase for Hebron in order to like fund their public schools. And so, yeah, so that just made me think about taxes and how they benefit us and what they do for our communities. So I just thought it would be a fun thing to talk about those, those these two stories today. So yeah, so our first story then today is titled, No Interest in Seeing Our City Progress. City services are based on tax revenue. And if you don't have enough people who are paying into that tax base, then of course you can't provide the the level of service that you have provided in the past. You have a lot of people who come into Gary, earn their living, but will not live here. Don't pay anything into the tax base. And so consequently, that creates a problem. And these are, in some instances, some of the biggest offenders in terms of talking about what the city is not. If we were able to do some things in terms of economic development, if we didn't have this stereotypical myth that don't move to Gary because, you know, the crime is so high, da da da, da all these bad things, and if we could have businesses who would say, I'll take a chance on Gary because I believe that it has potential, then we could do a lot of things in this city. And that is what our issue is, is economic development and the fact that they'll come here and make their living and at five o'clock they'll leave and during the day they do not spend any money putting anything into the tax base. And that's true with a lot of our public service employees, our teachers, a lot of people who uh, work in the city but will not live in the city. Statutorily, we cannot require them to live in the city. They can live in a contiguous county. That's what the statute says, so they don't have to live in the city. I don't believe that there's anything that we can do in order to change it at this point because of the way that the state legislature is made. 
It's made up of people who are, you know, Southern whites who have no interest in seeing our city progress. There are those people who would like to see Gary just die. And I, that is so sad, it's so tragic, because we do have a lot of potential. Several years ago, when they had the Distress Unit Appeal Board come in, and their position was you need to shut down the Genesis Center, you need to shut down Hudson Campbell, you need to take away the clerk's office, you need to take away the city court, you know, you need to take away all these things. But they, they really didn't know anything about our city. So I, you know, my position was, why don't you come to Gary and see what Gary really is and, and, and see? Because some of the things that I think that you believe just aren't so. I could remember, well, I won't name names, but going to an interview uh, with someone from downstate and uh, we had a problem with some of our finances. And the lady's first comment before we even started the meeting was, well, when Gary has to file bankruptcy, it won't matter. So I thought, hmm, you know, yeah. So welcome, everybody, to, to Welcome Project Radio here on WVLP 103.1 FM. You're here with me, Allison, and Willow, and Reagan. And uh, we're doing we're doing something we don't usually do, talking about taxes. <laughs> but actually, it's something much deeper and broader than that too. It has to do with investment in our communities. So, um, so you just heard a story from our Flight Paths Initiative, which is um, a, a resident there who's talking about um, a kind of disinvestment that's happened in Gary historically for quite a long time. All right, Willa, do you want to start us off with questions today? Yeah, yeah. So my first question is, how does she describe economic development in Gary as it relates to people paying taxes? I mean, I think she more describes a lack of economic development due to, to Gary's taxes, right? She's talking about all these people who work in Gary, but who will not spend their money in Gary and who will not live in Gary. So Gary isn't getting, you know, Gary's getting their labor, but Gary is not getting their, their patronage, so to speak, via taxes. Yeah, I'm not sure that I that I have anything to add to that, although um, I'll just sort of underscore what the storyteller says about the fact that people come and work in Gary and then leave. And that's a refrain that we've heard about Gary since the, uh, like when people refer back to um, the deindustrialization and the automation of the steel mills. And so that's been going on since like at least the 1980s, if maybe not even starting in the 1970s, where people who had worked at the mill um, were leaving during, uh, after their shift and taking um, their paychecks with them and not paying into the tax base anymore because the white residents, the white workers at least had moved, many of them had moved to the suburbs. Um, I think the other thing I hear is a frustration with public service employees. So I'm thinking like police officers, um, maybe fire and rescue, as well as the teachers. So folks who are getting a nice paycheck from the city itself, and then not reinvesting that into the city because they live in a contiguous city or county. 
Um, I can only imagine how frustrating that would be as a council member, which this storyteller is. Yeah, I wonder too, like, I, I remember a similar conversation happening at Valpo University. Like, do Valpo University faculty have to be in Valpo or can they come in from like surrounding cities? Yeah, I think there, I don't know if there was ever any sort of formal policy about this, but um, certain departments would encourage their faculty to live in Valpo. I never thought about it in terms of taxes. I had always, at least it was pitched to me as like community. So you're actually close at hand and you can be available to students and the campus for, you know, uh, extracurricular activities and things like that. But it's interesting to think about potentially in terms of um, also reinvesting in the city and having a stake in what's going on in the city. Mm-hmm. I think the town gown thing though, for most universities and certainly for us here, um, there's always a, there's, there's a strain, like even for those of us who live in the city, if you don't have kids in the school system or you don't make an attempt to get involved, it can be pretty easy, even if you live here, to not necessarily always invest your time in civic engagement because the university life draws so much of your energy. See, I was going to say, like, it makes sense that you would want folks to live in the area for community, like you were saying, but I don't know. It's like, I feel like I would understand it more for maybe like Valpo or Crown Point or maybe Munster or these other places that are a little bit more expensive to get a sort of like apartment or a house in. And so it would make sense to me to be like, okay, you don't necessarily have to live in Valparaiso just because housing is higher here, like the cost of it. And so it's weird to me that in Gary, like you wouldn't have a sort of requirement that's like that. I mean, it just, I mean, I just feel like it goes to say like how people are viewing Gary as a city in terms of like not making people live there. Cause I don't know, it just doesn't feel unfair to say, hey, please live here because it's not like the housing cost is like crazy high or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there are other cities that actually do have statutes that require their public service employees. So people who actually get their paycheck from the city teachers, firefighters, police officers to live in the city. Um, And so I think it's important that the storyteller is like, yeah, we can't require that. Um, She connects it to downstate Indy and state legislature, which I think is interesting because I wouldn't, I, I just don't know enough about state politics. Like how can Indianapolis legislators, um, have that kind of say over what statute happens in the city of Gary. So this is just my limitation of like really local politics and how it works. Um, I don't know. Do any of us here? I don't. <laughs> have I try, that kind, I of- mean, kind of like, not really, like I am not a legislative person, but um, I, in this social stratification, I class it class. I took at Valparaiso. Um, one of the, the many papers we read about social stratification was specifically about schools and their tax base and how school funding is determined by tax base. But obviously, if you live in a poorer area, even if it's well populated, that tax base is not as powerful 
as say like a tax base with maybe fewer people with fewer children, but who make more money, like based on neighborhood. And like that whole conversation was like, well, what, how do you restructure like an entire tax system so that all schools and all children are equally considered whether or not their parents are poor? So, I mean, that definitely is very state related. Like, obviously, local government has a fair amount of say in tax raises and stuff. Like, I know in my own uh, community or I guess my mom's community, uh, you know, there's voting for raising taxes to assist in schools or assist with building projects or that kind of thing. But ultimately, like, you know, tax structure and everything is very federal. It's very state. Yeah, that makes me think of like how it must work in Chicago, because I don't know, I hear a bunch, like always a lot of like push for Chicago public schools and like funding in that way and like how charter schools kind of come in and sort of undercut public schools ability to provide resources. And so you'd think that, I don't know, maybe Chicago itself can't do something without the state legislature. I don't know. But again, I think we're getting into a fuzzy area that I don't understand how taxes work. <laughs> But I, I do think it's interesting that, I mean, I don't know, I guess like for me, I'm not as hung up on the idea that like these folks, like the public service people aren't living in Gary, which I think would help immensely. Because I think that goes back to this idea of like, you know, this excessive amount of police force that's in like you know the south side of chicago it's like are these folks that are like policing here it's like are they living in the south side of chicago or are they coming in from like hyde park or lincoln park or something like that and then like going you know so there's something to say of like can you really consider the people you're serving like part of your community if you're such like an external force to the community i mean i think there's that aspect of it but i don't know the part that really gets me is just like the amount of mill jobs that specifically are held by people in Gary and then they just they are leaving and I think that is what contributes so much to it because I mean correct me if I'm wrong but isn't it like that's kind of how Gary and the surrounding area came to be because of all of that industrialization from the steel mills like there there's that town that's near the steel mill that's in it's around Hammond it's like that small town I can't think of what it's called right now but it's like that was totally created just out of like people who are working at the mill and then creating housing right there. And so I think it's weird that we have this sort of drive outward into the suburbs, sort of away from urbanization, which makes sense. But I just think about like my mom's boyfriend growing up worked at the mill and so did his son. And then they would drive all the way out to Wanita back home every single day. And it was this like crazy drive that they would have to do every day. And I'm, I just... I just think about like how many other people are also making this huge drive to like go in for this job and then go way out into some remote place that's not Gary. I don't know, I just feel like that must affect it so much more. Yeah, and I wonder how much people who are doing that really think about, make that commute, really think about the fact that there's this other impact going on. Because we kind of just generally in our society accept commuting as a part of work life. Um, and so you could easily just, just not, not even have a broader understanding of the impact that you might have in this particular case as um, someone who's contributing to the disinvestment in an actual city. Um, oh, go ahead, Reagan. I think where 
so the speaker is correct like 100 is correct um you know these people especially public service providers ideally like you and willow are saying should probably be more involved in the community as a whole because they are such an integral part of the community and of course another part of that is the tax space but i guess i just really in general as a as a human being struggle to put more blame on individual people due to their individual choices um just because i feel like this as a whole shouldn't be structured this way to begin with you know what i mean it absolutely shouldn't like why are children from one neighborhood because they are from a poorer neighborhood less worthy than children from an, a more upper class neighborhood like why is this set up this way to begin with in regards to schools in regards to like public services like clean streets like all that other stuff like why does one neighborhood get to have more money just because people who live there are wealthier than another for basic public services that are supposed to be government provided you're listening to welcome project radio at wvlp 103.1 fm this is allison shooty and willa walsh and reagan skaggs and we are discussing today like how city tax bases either support or don't support in the case of Gary, Indiana, the life of the residents there. Um, yeah, I think Reagan, to your point, this storyteller is pointing the finger <laughs> less at the public service employees and teachers and more at like the state legislature. Um, she says, uh, that the state legislators made up of people who are, you know, Southern whites who have no interest in seeing our city progress. They are, there are those people who would like to see Gary just die. Um, and I think it's interesting that she uses the term Southern maybe as a euphemism here. Um, I hear that at least as a kind of uh, like whites who are anti-Black, who are racist, who don't want to see Gary succeed because it's a black city. Um, and for whatever reason, she doesn't come out and say that. So I can't know that for sure. But um, I feel like that gets a little bit Reagan at what you were saying. Like there's something deeper going on here, at least in this particular case of Gary. And so we need to be thinking of like, how do we fix this at a deeper policy level, as opposed to just thinking of like, how do we coax firefighters to live in the city in which they serve. I think for me, that's just my general distrust of government and how I have no, I don't know, I just feel like if a policy were to come down and something were to change, I don't know, I just like I don't believe in our state legislators enough to like actually pass something so i don't know i i feel like i always just gravitate back towards like individual i don't know not even like responsibility but i'm just like i just i have no trust that this won't happen outside of people just deciding to make it happen and so that's where it comes from from me i don't know but i i guess it's interesting to think like where the sort of like money filters in from the state and the local way because like I don't know. I don't know if anybody else is driving around Valpo these days, but like 49 was under 149 was under construction. 130 was under construction. Like two was under construction. Oh my gosh. It's just like we're doing constant road construction all the time. 
And then if you drive through Gary, like some streets are really awesome and like some back streets, are, like they'll like, you know, take your wheel off if you're not careful. Um, and I just like, I don't understand like how money goes across locally like this. And I, I don't know, I mean, like, maybe I'm just like calling out our, our educational system because like, I feel like I should know how this operates. Like I, I saw a tweet the other day that was like, every time, like every time I had a US history class in high school, we would just run out of time at the end of the year. So I didn't learn any history past like 1960. And they're like, I, that feels so true to me. Like I, like I know like no history except for what I sought out on my own past like 1960. And it's just like, I feel like if I had better tools as like a community person to understand how this impacts the community, I would be able to do more things about it or like care or like show up to vote when there's a policy decision. And so, I don't know, I just, I get so worried that we just don't know enough. Like I live, like I don't know enough. Like if we were to like, do some sort of policy on a state level that would maybe like help Gary or like help like the region in some way, I wouldn't know how it operates. And so I think that's the part that scares me the most is that like, I think that our state legislators must be culpable in this way for not sort of putting forth policy or voting, you know, for good policy, but also me as an individual, I literally don't understand how it operates or what I can do to help. And that's the part that I struggle with the most because it's like I drive through Valpo and I see businesses, I see road construction, I see all of this and I drive through Gary and I see some of that. But it's, you know, there's a stark difference that you can see between like Valpo and Gary. And I just and I think that's maybe part of why we sort of hold Gary responsible. We hear this refrain that's like, you know, why doesn't Gary just, you know, get its stuff together like why don't people in gary just do something about it but literally it's just like do we know how this operates i really I don't know, maybe this isn't like a good take but like i just i don't know and so like what am i as a person supposed to do about this when i don't even understand where the money goes in my community i'm waiting for the social worker <laughs> who i assume has some more understanding of systems than we do but but maybe that's not true when it comes down to this granular like tax kind of stuff. I, I mean, I do think that Valpo's road construction is less about uh, local taxes and more about um, government grants that they've gotten, federal grants, federal money that they've, um, I don't, uh, and my, lim my knowledge is limited if it's like a kind of, you know, if the city puts forward half then the federal government will cover the other half and then like does Gary not even have money to put towards that kind of thing so it can't benefit from federal programs for like road repair um yeah so I I do think that there's a way in which communities that are already doing well have more opportunities than cities that aren't doing well because they just can't even put forward the kind of money to match some kind of federal program. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really helpful to think of which one willow, first of all, I just wanted to say that the not teaching history past 1960 is intentional because at that point, like it gets controversial because, you know, Vietnam, all that fun stuff, hippies, nobody wants to have an angry parent come in. Um, but also with taxes, I think it's really helpful to kind of think of it along the same lines as an individual trying to get benefits 
So like, if you are a person who is trying to get some kind of benefit, there are certain things they're going to want. One, they want your birth certificate, social security, like a driver's license, that kind of documentation, which one often requires you to have an address or a safe place to store those things. Not everybody does. Um, and then on top of that, like uh, they want proof of income, which might involve having a bank account, which most very poor people do not have a bank account, or they'll want you to otherwise provide proof of income via taxes. Well, if you haven't been making income, then you don't have a tax form. So there's all these forms on top of, okay, so you can have benefits. We've finally gotten through all these other processes that you as a very poor person or a slightly less poor person has had to go through and has had to participate in. But now you need to wait because our bureaucracy is going to take an additional month to give you those things. So you still need to fund what you can fund for yourself until we can get you your food stamps, your HUD, whatever, whatever. So it's, for me, oftentimes it's easier to understand that basic premise on like larger and larger scales. So Valparaiso doesn't need benefits and it can afford to spend like its extra money on doing stuff like applying and getting grants for stuff like road construction. It can do stuff like support or encourage small business or keep small business in a downtown area, can maintain like nice streets and have festivals all these other things because it has excess income and because it continues to generate that income. Whereas like cities like Gary, you know, they're still trying to get like their quote unquote papers together. Like they're stuck in that position because they are the, the metaphorical poor person who does not have like a proper bank account and who does not have the documentation needed to even begin step one. But if they don't have that information because the system isn't set up to allow them to have that information. So it's it's one big nasty circle. This is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, community supported radio, also streaming live from WVLP.org. We rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing, volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. Please consider supporting this station by visiting our website, wvlp.org backslash support. Donations are tax deductible, and we sure appreciate it. Uh, and the we today is me, Allison Chudy, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. And we have been discussing um, how the city of Gary uh, experiences a disinvestment because the tax base has been so eroded by white flight and by the flight of businesses from the city. Um, and it's this kind of cycle that has um, gotten the city stuck in a certain sense over time. Um, do we want to play the second story? Or I know there's some parts of this story that we haven't fully explored. Um, just the sense that the storyteller has that there are people who are just waiting for Gary to fail. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would love to talk about that a little bit too, because I think there, the, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing a different aspect of like people's prospect for Gary based on what the speaker is saying. Because, well, one of my questions is, it's like, well, what would it mean for Gary to die? But also, like the implication there is that some people want Gary to die. But I feel like I've also heard a lot of people like they want like Gary, quote unquote, to come back 
which I don't know, like when when I hear people from Valpo saying that, I get this like sneaking suspicion that it's like these like this like weird gentrification thing and like condos are sort of like overtaking Gary again, which yeah. but I don't know, it's just like do we is that what the state wants to have happen with Gary? Like I don't know, I'm I don't know, I'm sort of I'm sort of perplexed that it's just like why do we have Gary right next to, say, like Portage? Or, I mean, I guess Valpo's not too far from Gary either, but just the sort of, I don't know, the, the difference in between the cities. I think the speaker also kind of brings it out too when she says like that businesses like just won't even take a chance on Gary and believe that it has potential. And so I wonder if that plays into the, the whole vibe there too, because I think about like, the small businesses that you know pop up in Valpo, and there are small businesses in Gary. But I also wonder, it's like, why isn't there like a big grocery store in Gary? Like, isn't there? There's like one way out in like Black Oak, I think. But it's like when we went to uh, the United Urban Network meeting, it's like we had to go to the Strax that was like way out in Maryville, and so that was weird to like have to go so far for a grocery store. I don't know. So it's just like. I think it's not only the sort of like tax and economic development that we're up against, but it's that sort of stereotypical myth that she's also pointing at that Gary has this sort of feeling that comes with it where people like just like not just the taxes are going to fix it. Like it's just not just, you know, putting money back into it. I think that would help. But it's just like there's people who just specifically avoid Gary. And I don't I don't know where we go with that. I don't know. I guess like, okay, when I come back to like why I picked this story, for me, it was like, I had always assumed, I just didn't understand because we had gone to Gary before for like real cats games growing up. And like, so I saw that like Valparaiso was different from Gary and I didn't understand why. And I just assumed like, you know, from the context that people give you growing up in Valpo, it's just like, oh, well, just that's how Gary is. And you sort of think like, well, why doesn't it look like Valpo? Why why aren't they doing things? And you sort of like put that responsibility back on Gary. But I don't know, for me, this story gives me a little bit more visibility into how much money and economic disinvestment can really play into how a city is shaped. Well, and to be clear, like, I know I love to have a class analysis, but yeah, no, we need to bring the racism back in here. Like, I, that is has to be such a significant portion of what is happening around perceptions of Gary, perceptions of living and working in Gary, perceptions of what Gary does or does not have to offer. So much of it is based around race, right? Like that's part of what, you know, Flight Paths talks about a lot is that the reason, you know, white flight is what put Gary in this position in the first place and continues to put Gary in this position. And because all a lot of the white people have left Gary suddenly Gary is is worth nothing it is a place that is bad it is a place that is either irreparable and needs to to go away or it is a place that needs to pull it up by its bootstrap and prove itself as like this model minority but it's it's a place it's a city it shouldn't be that way I wonder about playing the second story now and seeing how this is a story right of a resident who a Gary born and raised resident who moves his son and himself out of the city and then reflects on that choice. Is this a good time to pull that in? Yeah. Um, this one is titled, I wanted more for my kid. 
The reason why um, I originally uh, moved to Sherville is because one, one reason was that, you know, I wanted the better schools uh, for my son. Just when you start thinking about, you know, getting into the global world, you know, you say, hey, you know, they got computers, they got the best of this, the best of that. You know, it's a more competitive environment educationally. So you just start thinking kind of like out the box, like, you know, what can I do as a parent to help my, my children be more successful? When I got into the administrative world, you know, I started making more money. Um, you know, I just wanted more for my for my kids. I kind of felt like I wanted more for my kids, or whatever. So I sent I went sent them to school in Sherville. But eventually, um, my son went there freshman sophomore year. He wasn't doing well. wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. So I eventually brought him back to Gary. You know, so um, he graduated from Westside High School. But uh, as a parent, sometimes you just overthink things. And you think you're trying to do the right thing for your kids. So you know, we moved out there. I made a sacrifice. Took him out there. I bought this, like, this huge house for no reason. Um, it's just me and him. You know, uh, it's just I just thought I was doing what I was supposed to do, you know, as a parent. Uh, kind of like I wanted more. But eventually, um, I come to realize that, you know, that really wasn't the case. That um, he got just as much nourishment at Westside than he, than he got at, at Lake Central. Although I don't necessarily literally live in Gary. I mean, I'm here all the time. I work here. I'm a coach here. I mean, I, I, I get home at eight, nine o'clock every night, you know, 10 hours of my day is spent in Gary, you know, so I definitely feel blessed that, you know, I'm from Gary. I'm also really excited when I go other places and I see other amazing things. Uh, one of the greatest analogies that I ever came across when I was in college is that I went to a gas station when I first, my, me and my father drove from Gary, Indiana to Illinois State University and we stopped, get gas, whatever. And when I went into the gas station, and that glass wasn't there. That like plexiglass, that that you no know, protective glass, and and I, I've never been like like a thief or anything. But I was like, man, you know, I could steal that bubble gum. You know what I mean? It was like it was there. It was like it was out in the public. And I was like, man, this is different. So that was kind of like my first experience of uh, going to college. Was my first experience of saying, you know, the whole world is not really guarded like that. The whole world is not really, you know, under the auspices of you know, protect yourself. Living in Sherville, you know, we go days and days and days upon days, you know, without locking our door or or whatever. Or my son to leave and leave, you know, the back patio open and stuff like that, you know. So that's just those are just things, experiences that, you know, we didn't we didn't do coming up in Geary. Welcome back to Listen Up. Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Willow and Reagan. Today, we're dipping back into our flight paths initiative and talking about economic disinvestment in the city of Gary. Um, and this second story is more reflecting on, in light of some of that um, disinvestment and the sort of stories that were told about what it means to go to a good school or what a good school looks like, uh, what a good neighborhood looks like. Um, you know, maybe a parent who wants to do right by their children will will leave. So I think this is a pretty interesting story in that regard. What stood out to uh, either of you? I feel like I should let Reagan take this because I know she has some opinions on this. Okay, first of all. <laughs> no, so I this story really interests me uh, because I feel like there's a couple of really interesting things going on here. Like one, we have the narrative of um, 
the correct thing to do, like the correct, uh, from what I understand, middle class thing to do, which is to own a home, to prioritize sending your child to a good school, which I think ideally would be anybody's priority. But, you know, moving to a neighborhood that is nice or a city that is nice because of the schools, it's a very like middle class move. And it's also like a very like typical American aspiration, like buy a house in a nice place. Don't have to lock your doors. How wonderful. Um, But there's also this like, there's this concept in sociology, it's called mean world syndrome. Um, And it is about how ingesting certain types of media or like consistently, like the 24 hour news cycle has ruined everybody's brains. (laughs) Um, And how that has made the world and how people interact with the world, how they, they picture the world, how they understand the world made it a very seemingly dangerous place when in reality that is not the case so i think you know this person this man is just trying to do what he believes is correct what he believes is right for himself and his child he's following the narratives but he's also kind of like falling into the cracks of those narratives where it's like well this doesn't have to be this way and this wasn't actually the best thing for my child like i i did the thing i was supposed to do And it's not that that thing was incorrect, but it wasn't as correct as I was told that it would be. How did you two understand the decision to move his child into the Cherville school system? And what do you think didn't work? Because he doesn't really tell us. It just... um, says that he got just the son got as much nourishment at west side than he got at lake central but we don't really get told why he doesn't do well at lake central so i am making some assumptions but i'm curious like how you both understood that yeah i mean when i when i hear him saying we're moving you know to shareville i'm hearing well i mean he even calls out like there's more resources better computers the best of this best of that but I like when I think about like he got the same amount, his son got the same amount of nourishment at both schools. I mean, I'm thinking like, you know, if you're moving into Cherville, which is, I don't know, I, I assume that Cherville is like Valpo and that's like a majority white like school. I, I don't know. That's just, I don't know. Is it really benefiting you just to have these additional resources? And like, I, I think maybe the, the thing that he runs into there is like mistaking these additional resources and money in this school as nourishment for your kid. And I think maybe he sort of finds out, we don't get to know actually, but maybe that that's not the kind of nourishment that he needs in order to be successful. And that's why they end up going back to Gary. Yeah, I mean, we don't get a a visual of the speaker, but I assume that this speaker is a person of color, a parent of color. Um, And what always first occurs to me um, is, again, another paper I read for my social stratification class. Uh, But it's these instances of white schools having, or white schools, but schools in better neighborhoods or better cities or more well-off cities, better is the bad word, but, you know, there's great things that happen there like one of the best things that can happen is like class mixing which is becoming more and more rare uh, with how school systems are separated these days but those things can be really beneficial for your child and learning how to like adapt and like exist in multiple contexts like that kind of thing but also with the the quote-unquote nicer schools often often comes like more 
police presence in those schools, more security presence comes more racism in those schools. So like if you are a person of color and your child is also a person of color and they are put in this position where they are now being very, you know, overwatched by both teachers, by uh, quote unquote resource officers that are within school systems, like it's a lot easier to one get in trouble and it's a lot easier to feel pushed to get into trouble and it's hard it's hard when you're you know a minority person in a place where you are being meant to feel like you don't belong or that you are being othered because you do not look or behave or have the same cultural markers as maybe your classmates do yeah, and I think also about like code switching and just having to like perform in certain contexts and how that must like is like an additional energy load that you have to do every day in addition to like learning and, and you know, forwarding your own education. That's got to be an additional barrier or annoyance. Yeah, I just think of other stories we have in the Welcome Project um, where it has been a black Gary youth who is going either to college at like Valparaiso University or like whose parent transferred them to Portage and the culture shock that they talk about as the student who's just like, whoa, <laughs> this is like a lot of white people. But I think that often is a statement that is, speaks to something that's much more fundamental underneath about different ways of being in the world, moving in the world, behavior, and just how jarring that could be, especially as an adolescent. I mean, maybe as a college student where you're starting to expect a little bit more from yourself in terms of like bravery or going outside your comfort zone. But I don't know, to think about doing that as a 14-year-old going into high school, <laughs> like, I mean, I had enough trauma, like as a white kid going to a public high school in Decatur, Illinois, um, like just as a 14 year old with lots of insecurities. And I can't quite imagine what it would be like to add like major culture shock on top of that. Um, you're listening to Welcome, Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio at WVLP uh, 103.1 FM in uh, community supported radio here in Valparaiso, Indiana. And we're talking today about some of our stories from flight paths and the kinds of investments that um, uh, that people look for in their city. Right now, we're talking specifically about schools and education. Um, but I think it's interesting because this this story goes beyond like just talking about school because he has this whole second narrative about his dad taking him. Uh, to college and this experience of the gas station and there isn't like glass between you and the, the, the clerk behind the counter, which actually in COVID world, um, I'm like, wow, that there might be a lot more plexiglass everywhere now. <laughs> um, but at least in this case, you know, just the assumption made about who's coming into your business and expectations of like how the um, social dynamic is going to be between the client and the person behind the till. I, I mean, that I just thought it was really interesting the way he talked about um, 
the whole world is not really as guarded as like the environment in which I was brought up in. And that feels like a, a really, like that could have such an impression on you like an unconscious impression on you, right? Like you're coming up in a world that's teaching you that people don't trust each other. Um, I just was really, really surprised by that. And it, it kind of makes me wonder like if there's things about the move that this storyteller made to Cheryl that they continue to appreciate, even if it wasn't about getting the better school. I don't think that he moved back to Gary. Is that the impression you all got? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, I, <laughs> I love his inclination to be like, you know, I'm not a thief or anything, but like, I could just steal this bubble gum. And I love that thought. Like, that's, it's like those, uh, I don't know, like when you're driving and sometimes you're like, you know, you're just driving and then you're like, I could just, I could just go off the road right now. I don't know. But <laughs> it's just, I think it's so funny that he's just like, the, the expectation that I have living in Valpo is a really similar experience and that I had the opposite experience like when I went to Chicago for the first time and I encountered like the sort of like wall of like plexiglass in the gas station and there's like there was like a fence up too and it was just like I was just like oh my gosh but I don't know it really does leave an impression about the type of relationship that you know that business has with the community in terms of like like, why is this necessary? I don't know, but it's like, you would never see this in Valpo, but it's not like theft doesn't happen in Valpo. But I, I don't know, I just, I think that's funny, the, the reaction that he has. But also, I mean, I don't know, it's like, I also never lock my doors. I've never locked my doors. It's not, Allison, the only time I lock my doors is when I go to your house and I'm locking your door, but that, <laughs> that's like the only time I lock doors. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I, I lock your doors. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I have to tell Reagan not to because I don't always have a key on me. Um, but yeah, I don't know, the sort of like baseline trust that you kind of have in the community, these sort of like little instances of like not having the plexiglass or just feeling more comfortable leaving your door open. I mean, I wonder, like, I don't know, I guess my question for him is like, is there a reason that you couldn't leave your door open in Gary? Or was that like an actual thing? Like you can't do this because there's more of a possibility that somebody will like come in your house or something? Or is this just sort of, and then, and then is my world just like, I have just as much, you know, availability for somebody to like walk in my house. People have walked in my house. I live right next to a business. And sometimes people think we're a business or like the FedEx person will come in at like eight in the morning and I'm in my jammies and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, but I don't know I just I never thought about locking my doors like that and I wonder like is there an actual reason to do like to not do it in Cherville or in Valpo or do we just feel more comfortable in this environment like are we just sort of conditioned in our public spaces like in gas stations or whatnot that we're, we're not as guarded and you can kind of let your guard down I don't know yeah, I think it's complicated and, and Reagan probably will have some insight on this from, you know, her sociology classes again. <laughs> Go Valparaiso University sociology department, really, and social work too. Um, but I do think that there's uh, like multi-layered uh, aspects to it because we have been taught as Americans that uh, like to criminalize 
black spaces and to consider them more dangerous. Um, at the same time, I feel like crime does go up in places where which are socioeconomically strapped. And it's not about moral failing, um, it's about economic need. So uh, we've, uh, we've like in the media at least conflated all of that stuff and made it like all about like race and moral character. Um, but I, I do think that there might be reasons why people in Gary in businesses or in residents are feeling, or in Chicago for that matter, um, are feeling more necess a necessity to lock their doors. I mean, I also grew up in a very small town, um, but my mom is from a bigger city or she grew up in a bigger city. So we've always like at night, we'll lock the doors. We don't lock them every time that we leave the house. Almost somebody is always in the house. But I do think, again, it comes back to that, that mean world hypothesis, that mean world theory where it's you are afraid because you are told to be afraid. And don't get me wrong. Like if you live in a place with more people, yes, certain things are more statistically likely. But um, they're not so much more, most of the time, they're not so much more statistically likely that they need to be a serious, like, all hands on deck concern. So it's a combination, right? It's a combination of like, yeah, maybe these things do happen. Like this is, I would bet a lot of money that Chicago gas stations do have their bubble gum taken more often than like my Warsaw, Indiana ones do. But that's going to be because there are more people in Chicago. And the number of patrons that a, uh, a Warsaw, Indiana gas station gets is nowhere near the number that a typical Chicago gas station will get. So it's this weird combination, this weird thing of like, you should be cautious and there's like a certain amount of like, maybe personal responsibility for your own safety, but also what you are being told and how frequently you, you and the way in which this information is being delivered or manipulated before being delivered is also very much impacting the way that you see and interact with the world and the way that the world see and in, sees and interacts with you. And it's hard to find that line. Yeah, and I think it's worth saying uh, uh, again to like, what kind of safety are people looking for and worried about? Like I, I, I go back to this city council meeting here in Valpo where, um, white resident was saying in response to one of our black residents saying they feel more safe in Gary than they do in Valpo. The white resident was saying just like, not to the public, but I happened to, to overhear the comment. Like he kind of scoffed at that idea that Gary could feel safer to somebody than Valpo. And I think at least for white people, or I don't know, maybe it doesn't have to just be about race. Like if you drive into a city that has gas stations with plexiglass and like bars on windows and things like that, you have this idea of lack of safety because you're seeing all of these elements that are supposed to be protecting, right? But when I think about what did the black resident mean when she said she feels safer in Gary, that's about social safety, right? And like about experiencing physical um, or worrying about 
how racism could play itself out in a white community where she's definitely in the minority. And there's lots of attitudes, uh, anti-Black attitudes in particular that are operating. Um, and that kind of reminds me a little bit of for this storyteller, what maybe, maybe we don't know his son was going through, right? Like there's a, there might be all of this like economic quote unquote safety at that really well resourced high school, but that doesn't mean there's going to be social safety there. So what kind of safety are we even looking for or talking about in any given moment is, is different as well. I know, I, I wonder like if the speaker sort of gives us an inkling into what we should sort of gather from his story because like, I want it to be so cut and dry to where it's like, yes, this was a good thing to do, or yes, this was a bad thing to do. And I think it's so more muddled than that, because I think like we're inferring that he is still living in Cherville with his son. And, but his son does go back to Gary schools. And so I'm, so I'm wondering like, as a resident who lives in Valparaiso, and like, if I'm going to move somewhere else in the region, like based on this, this speaker's story, like what maybe I get from that? I don't know. Or maybe it's more of a cautionary thing. Like there's just so much more nuance and it's not as cut and dry as moving to Cherville because there's more resources there. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think that it it's the nuance. And I think that's part of like, the inconvenience of a human story, you know, it's never going to, it's very rarely going to be that cut and dry of this is right and this is wrong. And I think that's just very reflective of like the limbo that individuals are in because of the situations that they are handed. Like he made personal decisions for himself and his child because he was doing his best, right? And he's doing his best in the, in the environment and in the system in which he currently exists. And what is the right decision in that moment when taking into account stuff like race and class and sex and gender and all of these things? It's such an impossible, an impossible thing to decipher, an impossible thing to decide. I think that's an appropriately <laughs> difficult comment to go out on, um, or maybe not difficult, but just in the sense of like, we tend to like uh, resolution or something like that. And I think what we're getting here is what we often learn through welcome project stories that we are living in the middle of our lives and there isn't going to be some kind of neat and tidy message to walk away with all the time. Um, we do wanna encourage you uh, to tune into WVLP for a new six part documentary that's been airing um, since the beginning of October, the end of September. And it's uh, Valpoc Plus, V-A-L-P-O-C Plus. And it tells the story of Valparaiso High School underrepresented students in their own words. So um, there is, uh, I think they're on episode, they're just about to start episode five and that will air um, Monday, November 1st from nine to 10 p.m. And there's lots of other opportunities to also hear the episode as they play, because it's aired more than once during the week. Um, but you could also find it via Spotify by going to spotify.com and using the keyword Valpo 
Valpoc Plus, V-A-L-P-O-C Plus. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Both are also open for business at their locations downtown on Lincoln Way. Visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. We also have a new underwriter. Um, We're super happy to be getting additional support from Michael and Kelly Marachna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. They are brand new underwriters for our show, and we're super excited to have them supporting us. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Michael and Kelly. Um, uh, If you'd like to hear more of our stories, you can find us online at welcomeproject.balbo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support WVLP and our show, you can make a donation by going to wvlp.org slash support, and we'd totally appreciate it. 